Uh, thanks for tuning in. It's great to see you guys here, and it's great to see you guys here in real life. It's nice to have some uh, people to preach to and uh, some different people than past weeks as well, so that's great. Uh, we're in the book of Proverbs. Again, we're going to be looking at what God has to say to us in uh, the wisdom literature. And uh, as we get started, just a quick uh, reminder for all of us uh, to don't, don't read the comments. Like comment sections in articles or on Twitter or on Facebook is just a bad idea. A uh, little piece of modern wisdom for us is that if you want your soul to be crushed and you want your heart pressure to, to raise, uh, your blood pressure to raise, you should read the comments. But if you uh, want to live sane, don't actually read them because the people who write the comments are usually um, fools. A lot of time, actually, that's where the fools come out. But fools haven't just started with social media. Fools uh, saying foolish things have happened for a long time. G.K. Chesterton uh, was a early, 19th, early 20th century writer, and uh, he said these words in his book, uh, Orthodoxy. He said, if a man says that men have a conspiracy against him, you cannot dispute it except by saying that all men deny that they're conspirators, which is exactly what conspirators would do. His explanation covers the facts as much as yours. Nevertheless, he's wrong. See, Chesterton's trying to point out the conspiracy vibe among people has always, it's always been there. It's a common thing, whether they're tweeting it or they're saying it as they walk down the street. So when, when we're scrolling through our, our Twitter feeds, our news feeds, our whatever social media you're on or, or reading newspapers as you're, as you're walking through the street, it's, it's not uncommon for us to actually hear Crazy people say crazy things. So how are we supposed to engage with fools when they say foolish things? Well, Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5 give us some wisdom for that. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. I love that these two Proverbs are right beside each other because they seem contradictory. Are we supposed to answer the fool or not answer the fool? Like, give us a straight answer, Solomon. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend the rest of our time here basically walking through these two verses. Uh, and from these two verses, we're going to spend uh, time thinking about three things. First of all, we need to quiet down. First of all, we need, or second, we need to speak up. And thirdly, we need to listen up. So quiet down, speak up, listen up. First, let's look at uh, the call to quiet down. Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. So sometimes wisdom is going to actually call us that when we see the fool acting foolish or saying foolish things like everyone's out to get me, there's a massive conspiracy theory, the entire city, the entire world is out to get me. When we hear people say those kinds of things, one way to respond faithfully with wisdom is to not actually answer the fool. Here's the reason that the, the, the writer gives us is because if we answer the fool, we might actually answer them in a foolish way. We might actually become like the fool we're trying to address. So in other words, it's possible to answer fools in their foolish words in foolish ways. Let me kind of paint it this way. So uh, imagine you are at your house. 
You hear your kids downstairs, they're fighting, they're yelling at each other. And one of your rules in your house is no yelling at your siblings. It's just like family law, right? You hear them yelling, you're frustrated, you start going down the stairs, you see them yelling at each other, and you respond to them by saying, we don't yell here. See, you've just answered the fool by acting like the fool. So there's times where we're going to hear people do foolish things, say foolish words, and our temptation is going to be to engage, and as we engage, we'll do it foolishly. We'll, we'll fix the yelling by becoming a yeller. We'll address the fool in a foolish way. Proverbs 18 verse 2 actually fleshes it out a little bit differently. Here's what it says. Proverbs 18 2, fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. How appropriate for the social media age. We see something that someone has written that is ludicrous. It's, I cannot believe that that person would actually believe that to be true. I don't actually care what they mean by what they're saying, but I would love to throw some opinions out about that. And the comment section gets larger and larger because no one's actually pursuing understanding, but everyone is delighting themselves and airing their own opinions. And so how does... How does this actually happen in our day and age where we have more access to information than anyone in the history of the world? We should be the people who should act the wisest and yet we act like fools. What, what is it in us that just moves us to act in this kind of way? So imagine with me for a minute that you're out for a walk, we're all out for a walk together. And uh, as we're out on our walk, it starts to rain. And we're thinking to ourselves, this is not a good situation. The skies are very dark. We don't actually see any hope of the rain ending anytime soon. And so we decide the best way for us to be safe in the rain is to actually go inside of this cave. So we duck inside of this cave. We're all very happy. We're getting dry in the cave. And we start talking to each other about how great the cave is. Isn't this cave so great? It's keeping us warm, it's keeping us dry, it's keeping us safe. Some people that were with us actually stayed out in the rain. We don't know what they're doing anymore, but they're not one of the cave people. Like, we're the cave guys. So we start congratulating ourselves about how great we are at being cave dwellers. We're like, aren't we amazing that we're in the cave? And we start talking louder, and we actually love hearing ourselves congratulate ourselves about our cave dwelling. And you start hearing the voices echo off the cave. Aren't we so great? Great, great, great. Isn't this so much fun? Fun, 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 fun. Now, actually, we keep doing this for a really long time, and it actually gets quite loud. The echoes are reverberating around. The choir of echoes are resounding inside the cave, and yet there's other people outside the cave now who are saying to us, the rain has stopped. You can come out. It's safe now. But we actually like being with the cave tribe. So even though there's safety out there, even though there's a different opinion out there that might actually be for our best, we actually prefer the echoes. We like listening to ourselves congratulate ourselves. In, in other words, it's very common for us in this day and age to accumulate a crowd of people who like the same things, who think the same things, and for us to just talk amongst ourselves in an echo chamber. And all we do 
is talk inside of the cave the kinds of things that we think are true and that we think are great. And there are other voices who might be able to add some wisdom to the situation, but the echoes are drowning them out. So what, what is it that you do when you, when you know someone is within this tight group and they don't want to listen to anything that you have to say, they don't want to listen to your wisdom, they don't want to listen to your opinions, they just are locked into their own little echo chamber. Typically what, what some will say at least is, you, you need to get out from that group and start thinking for yourself. You need to be an independent thinker. But what's interesting actually is that I, I'm with a guy named Alan Jacobs who in his book, How to Think, actually tries to make an argument that there is no such thing as an independent thinker. Here's what he says. Alan Jacobs in his book, How to Think, writes, to think independently of other human beings is impossible. And if it were possible, it would be undesirable. Thinking is necessarily, thoroughly, and wonderfully social. Everything you think is a response to what someone else has thought and said. And when people commend someone for thinking for herself, they usually mean ceasing to sound like people I dislike and starting to sound more like people I approve of. Jacobs points out something that's really valuable for us, that, that there is no such thing as the independent thinker, that we all think alongside of other people. We think like the people that we want to be like or who are like us or who agree with us already. And it is so easy for us to just pick the tribe, have our opinions and have those same opinions go deeper and deeper and deeper, whether or not they're actually true or best. And so when we come onto social media, when we come into conversations with people and we see someone who says something that doesn't fit our tribe's narrative, our first response in many cases is not actually to try to seek understanding, but we want to delight in airing our own opinion. We want to immediately come in with why they're so foolish for thinking the things that they do. They're not the cave dwelling people like us who are smart and warm and dry and enjoy the sounds of the echoes coming around. And this causes another little bit of challenge for us because now what happens is we, we realize that there becomes an us, an us and them. There, there, there's the people in the room and there's the people who aren't in the room. There's this experience, our, our time together and there's their time together. And that us and them eventually breeds this kind of dis discontent, this, this disdain for other people. So much to the point that uh, the anthropologist Susan Harding wrote an essay in 1991 where she coined the term the repugnant cultural other. This idea that there are other people out there who don't think the way we think. And it's not just that we disagree with them, it's that we start actually being repulsed by them. So whenever that person says anything, they're automatically wrong. We can't actually hear them out. Once we see that person post, we know we're not gonna like it regardless of what they say. Maybe you actually have this kind of repugnant cultural other in your mind. You probably don't call them that, but maybe you have that former friend from your high school days and they used to be so normal and now they're into like that? Or maybe it's a politician that no matter what they say, you're presuming that it's going to be foolish or some public figure that you just really don't like or maybe it's not even a, a person, it's, it's an idea, right? So now in our day and age of COVID, there are so many ideas that are floating around and theories and ideas and solutions. And it's so easy for us to pick a tribe, live in that tribe and not actually wanna entertain anyone else's opinions. Maybe it has to do with something like wearing masks. One group is like, you know what? 
Masks are amazing. If you want to be a good Christian, wear a mask because you're going to protect other people. And another group says, I can't believe you bought into this mask propaganda. Surely the best way to live as a Christian is to fight against government overreach in these kinds of things because we need to fight for the freedoms. And it's possible that now these two entrenched positions form groups and now they view each other as the cultural other. We live in a world where all people and Christians included actually function in their daily lives with a visceral negative reaction towards the repugnant cultural other without actually seeking understanding. So when we hear the fool say their foolish thing, rather than trying to engage them, we just delight in airing our own opinion. And in engaging the fool, we become just like them. Alan Jacobs writes this about this trend of the repugnant cultural other. He says, this is a profoundly unhealthy situation. It's unhealthy because it prevents us from recognizing others as our neighbors, even when they're quite literally our neighbors. If I'm consumed by this belief that that person over there is both other and repugnant, I may never discover that my favorite television program is also his favorite television program. That we might like some of the same books, though not for precisely the same reasons, that we both know what it's like to nurse a loved one through a long illness, all of which is to say that I may all too easily forget that political and social and religious differences are not the whole of the human experience. The cold, divisive logic of the RCO, the repugnant cultural other, impoverishes us, all of us. And it brings us closer to that primitive state that the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes called the war of every man against every man. When we live with a repugnant cultural other kind of mindset, we think to ourselves, how could anyone not want to be in the cave? They're so crazy, those non-cave dwellers. We won't ever actually listen to what they have to say. Instead of seeking to understand them, we just delight in airing our own opinion. And in so doing, when we engage and answer the fool according to their folly, we actually become like them. So sometimes when we hear the fool starting to talk and we read the fool's tweets, it might actually be best for us to not say anything because we not, might not actually be able to engage with that fool on that issue without us actually becoming one too. See, the way that you answer fools that doesn't actually sound like a fool should actually carry an aroma of wisdom. It should taste like the fruit of the spirit. So James chapter three, verse 17, James says that the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. In our engagements with people on the street, in our disagreements with people in conversations, in our social media posts and our commenting, is there an aroma of wisdom like James 3 actually lists out? Or is there a taste of the fruit of the Spirit like Galatians 5, that there is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Would people hear us talk to those with whom we disagree and see our tweets and see our comments on people's Facebook posts? And would they say that response tasted like the fruit of the Spirit to me? Or would they say that in their engaging the fool and their answering the fool, they actually became just like them? So sometimes wisdom is actually going 
to command us when it comes to answering a fool to just quiet down. Secondly, when we hear a fool that's speaking foolishly, we can also speak up. Here's Proverbs chapter 26, verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. So sometimes wisdom actually calls us to answer the fool. We just heard about how sometimes we, it's best and wisest to actually not answer the fool because we can't actually do it without becoming like them. But now the proverb tells us to actually answer the fool according to his folly. And what's the difference here? Well, the, the difference is in the second line, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Sometimes we need to engage the fool out of a place of love for that person. We decide to engage not to flex our muscles about how smart we are, about how much we know, about how little they know. We don't engage them to try to dunk on them and try to show how, how ridiculous they are, but we engage with the fool and their foolish views for their benefit. Not to show off, but to actually show love. This is hard. Because a lot of us, when we hear a foolish person saying a foolish thing, have that impulse in us where we would rather just air our opinion. We would rather just say what we think needs to be said. We think to ourselves, someone has to say this, so I'm just going to say it. And we say things in a way where we're not actually mindful or caring at all about how it's being heard. But all good communication acts care about how they're being heard. It matters not just to say something, but to say something in a way that others will be able to appreciate and understand and access. Look, gifted communicators have the raw capability to wax eloquent about all kinds of things and to hold an audience for long periods of time. It's a skill that you can learn, but good teachers, good communicators who are loving are going to be able to analyze who they're speaking to and try to find ways to speak that's going to best serve their conversation partner. What a difference it would make in our communities if we adopted a mindset of not just speaking because we have something to say, but because we want that person to hear us. Not because we want to just speak. Look, teaching and having these moments of, you know, keyboard warrior of pounding things out on the computer, that they're not just opportunities to show off our smarts. They're not just opportunities to show how gifted we are. These are moments for us to ask the question, how do I help that person learn this thing that's actually going to benefit them. And in the, in the world of you know, teaching or preaching or leadership or whatever it is, the point isn't how do I get an opportunity to teach, but how do I actually help that person learn? That's how you answer a fool according to their folly in a wise way, is that you're actually trying to help them see. You don't want them to think that what they're believing in the moment is actually best. You want them to change their mind because you know if they change their mind, it will actually be better for them. But we have to do the hard work of when we scroll past the post that's making us mad and we choose to engage, we have to do the hard work of asking ourselves the questions, how do I respond so that this person will actually hear me? Not just how do I say it in the best way so that I look good. How do I say it so they'll actually understand what I'm trying to say? So to do this well, I think we have to do at least two things. The first one is we need to be willing to ask questions to ensure that we understand the viewpoint we're engaging. 
We have to ask clarifying questions. Hey, I heard you say this. Is that what you meant? I heard you said A, B, C. Do you also believe D? For us to clarify what they're actually trying to say. But the other part that I think is going to be harder and take more work is to try to discern how best to talk to this person about this issue so that they'll actually learn. So here, let me uh, give us a bit of a, a picture for this. We do this intuitively when we play a game like uh, Taboo, right? You're playing, you're at someone's house, you pull out the Taboo board game thing, and you have to go through the list, and you pick your teams. And uh, the key part of winning Taboo is knowing who's on your team. Because you need to be able to say things that are going to spark words in their mind. So, for example, let's say that Sarah, my wife, and I were playing a game of Taboo. And uh, I'm up, and I'm giving the clues to Sarah. And I have the word that says seal. Now, I know that my wife doesn't really care very much about celebrities or a ton of pop, cult pop culture stuff. That's not really her, her thing. So if I went and I started giving her clues for the word seal by saying, well, uh, he's a British singer-songwriter. He was married to Heidi Klum for a few years. Uh, he sang a Kiss from a Rose, which was featured in Batman. She would look at me and say, none of those clues actually help me. None of that communication, although it made you look smart, helps me understand what you're trying to say. Whereas if I knew uh, my teammate in this case, and I wanted her to guess the word seal, what I would probably say is, we saw one of these kayaking in Harrison, and we didn't think they were in lakes. And she would say, seals, a seal. We didn't know they were in a lake. She would know immediately what I was talking about. But the only way you can do that is if you know your conversation partner well enough to say, how do I say this in such a way that you'll actually hear me? How do we engage the fool so that they don't think that they are wise in their own eyes? How do we engage them so that they actually will see the disconnect between what they believe and what is actually true? And this is not a short work. This is a long process. This is uh, hard work that actually is more like a marathon of trying to pursue the other's good than it is the sprint of just trying to say what we want to say as fast as we possibly can. So we, we need to answer the fool. There, there is a call of wisdom to answer those who are believing foolish things and propagating foolish things. There is wisdom in answering them, but we answer them in such a way that they won't just think that they'll actually hear us and what we're trying to communicate. Thirdly, we need to listen up. See, when we're talking about how do you engage fools, uh, it's very easy for us to think that we're not the fool. As we're reading that proverb, we're thinking to ourselves, well, uh, surely I'm the one who is wise, and they're the one who's the fool. Right? Because if I, if I was the fool, then I would be wrong. But I'm not wrong because I'm me. And the things that I think are right because I think them. So clearly, the ones who are the fools are those people, not, not me. They're, they're the people who are staying outside of the cave, not the people who love to be in the cave to stay warm. But what if we're the fool? 
What if the thing that we are holding onto doesn't actually reflect as accurately as it should what God teaches us in his word? What if the thing we're holding onto so tightly isn't actually what's best? Yeah, we have convictions, but we might actually still be the fool. So how do we make sure we're not the fool? <laughs> what's the fool prevention program? I think it has to do with actually listening. Here's why I say that. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. Proverbs 19.20 says this. Listen to advice and accept discipline. And at the end, you'll be counted among the wise. So what do the book of Proverbs call us to do? If, if you don't want to be a fool, the main strategy you take to ensure you're not in the fool camp is to always be willing to have a disposition to actually listen and to learn. To recognize that the thing that I believe right now might not actually be the right view to hold. If we operate with that mindset, we won't ever actually be stuck as a fool. We might be there for a while, but we'll be open to learning more because we refuse to let our convictions just stay where they are without any outside opinions asking us to consider, maybe have you thought about this angle? Here's a, maybe a helpful way for us to think about it. Uh, the best athletes in the world still use personal trainers and have coaches. The best communicators are going to seek out constructive criticism for how they could communicate better. The best leaders get feedback from the people around them. The best authors have editors who tell them, don't write that whole page is garbage. The wisest people out there are the people who actually listen to advice and accept guidance. They add to their learning. There's a disposition on themselves that says, I have strong opinions about things and I have convictions that I think are true, but I might actually be wrong. There's a guy in the 16th century who was part of the uh, Reformation movement. He's not one of the names that you might be thinking I'm gonna say. He was a part of the Radical Reformation group. His name was Balthazar Hubmeyer. Uh, he was not a very popular guy over the ages, uh, probably because his name's Balthazar. And it's not as, trendy or witty or quick as a Martin Luther or John Calvin, but Balthazar Hubmeyer was a guy who, uh, as a part of the Reformation movement of the 16th century, said, hey, I love what we're doing with trying to reform the church, and I'm just going to try to keep going back to the Bible and say, are there other ways that we can try to be more faithful to the text? And so he, among some other people, actually had some disagreements with Martin Luther and with John Calvin about some other issues not necessarily about the uh, saved by grace through faith part, but some other issues. So he was involved in all kinds of debates and dialogues and some of them very heated. Here's some words that he had to say. He said, these are my convictions, which I've been taught out of scripture. If they should not be right and Christian, I beg you all through Jesus Christ, our only savior. I plead and admonish you by reason of the last judgment, that last day, please, Correct me in brotherly and in a Christian way with scripture. For I may err, I'm a human being. 
but a heretic I cannot be. I want and desire from the heart to be instructed. One of the best Bible teachers of the 16th century had the mindset of, I don't want you to let me stay wrong. Show me where I'm wrong in the scriptures. Show me the passage that tells me that what I believe isn't best, isn't wisest, isn't the best way to actually live my life. He was teachable. He was coachable. He was correctable. He might not have always been right, but he was no fool. I quote G.K. Chesterton earlier on in the sermon when he was talking about this guy who thought everyone was conspiring against him. Here's a bit of a longer section of that book that I think is really helpful for us as we try to think about how do we make sure we're not actually the fool. Here's what he writes. If a man says that men have a conspiracy against him, you cannot dispute it except by saying that all the men deny that they are conspirators, which is exactly what conspirators would do. His explanation covers the facts as much as yours. Nevertheless, he's wrong. But if we attempt to trace his error in exact terms, we shall not find it quite so easy as we had supposed. Perhaps the nearest we can get to expressing it is to say this, that his mind moves in a perfect but narrow circle. A, a small circle is quite as infinite as a large circle, but though it is quite as infinite, it's not so large. In the same way that the insane or the fool explanation is, is quite as complete as the sane one, but it's not so large. The lunatic's theory explains a, large, explains a large number of things, but it does not explain them in a large way. If we could express our deepest feelings of protest and appeal against this obsession, I suppose we should say something like this. So how do you answer the guy who thinks everyone's against him? Oh, I admit that you have your case and you have it by heart and that many things do fit into other things as you say. I admit that your explanation explains a great deal, but what a great deal it leaves out. Are there no other stories in the world except yours? And are all men busy with your business? Suppose we grant the details. Perhaps when the man in the street did not seem to see you, it was only his cunning. Perhaps the, when the policeman asked you your name, it was only because he knew it already. But how much happier would you be if you only knew that these people cared nothing about you? How much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it? If you could really look at the other men with common curiosity and pure pleasure, if you could see them walking as they are in their sunny selfishness and their virile indifference. You begin to be interested in them because they were not interested in you. You would break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always being played and you would find yourself under a freer sky in a street full of splendid strangers. Or in other words, don't you see the potential joy ahead of you if you could just admit that sometimes you're wrong? Because that means that your life could actually be better if you believed the other thing. Flourishing could actually be ahead of you if you admitted that I might actually be wrong in this issue. To live with a disposition that you might actually be wrong and the joy that will come to your mind when you think, Someone could show me a better way. But fools don't think that they could be wrong. 
So if we ask ourselves the question, am I a fool? The question we have to ask ourselves is, am I open to being wrong? Or do I stubbornly prefer the warm and stagnant air of my echo chamber instead of the cool, fresh air of other opinions? Are we actually willing to listen? When people come and they speak to us because maybe they're looking at us and saying, actually, my friend, here's where I think you are the fool. And maybe they're going to come to us with a word of advice or an opinion or something to bring to the table. And they're going to try to present it to us in such a way that we're actually going to receive it because they care for us. The question we have to ask ourselves is, am I willing to accept that I might actually be wrong? This is actually a more foundational part of the Christian life than I think we give it credit for. The idea of holding on to our rightness as a Christian virtue doesn't actually make much sense with the Christian story. The only reason we become Christians is because we recognize that we are in the wrong. We are the hungry who need bread. We're the thirsty who need living water. We are the sick who need a healer. We are the orphans who need a father. We're the sinners who need saving. We're the rebels who need reconciling. We are the dead who need life. We are wrong and we need the right to come. So are we willing to actually listen and accept that we might be wrong? Maybe for the first time. Are you willing to accept that actually the way you viewed the world is not actually the way it is? That Jesus, who came and actually claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, actually is the way, the truth, and the life? Are we willing to listen? The Christian life is one of perpetual recognition that we are often wrong. It's the recognition that we all need a teacher to follow. We need people to come around us and correct us and show us how to do things in a more accurate way. We need Jesus to show us how to live, how, how to live with our money and how to live with our relationships and how to live with our priorities and our pleasures and our time and our abilities. And we need a church to come around us and actually live out those ways. Wisdom calls us to recognize that when it comes to answering fools, there's a time for us to be quiet. There's a time for us to speak. So will we listen? Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that it uh, shows us what real life actually is, what reality actually is, because it shows us Jesus, who is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. So Father, I pray for those of us who haven't yet changed our minds and decided to follow Jesus. I pray that you would, by your spirit, allow us to do so. That we would maybe for the first time see that Jesus actually is who he says he is, that I was actually wrong. He is the Savior. And Lord, for all of us who have been following you for a while, I pray that in those areas of our lives where we have not allowed ourselves to follow after your ways, where we haven't admitted that we're wrong, Lord, I pray that we would turn away from those things and turn towards your truth. Help us be the kind of people who live wisely, 
in our conversations in person and online. Help us be the kind of people who listen to your guidance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.